Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, December 3rd, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story is from the Fearless column. 20 Years of Decline, Iowa's Dwindling Birthing Units. Communities, hospitals, and doctors seek solutions amid Iowa's changing maternal health and economic landscapes that drove the loss of 40 birthing units since 2000. By Sarah Bogards. Editor's Note. This is the first story in a three-part series focusing on the closure of birthing units in Iowa, the factors driving the trend, and how it is changing maternal health care in Iowa. Part one looks at the overall problem. Part two explores a couple of communities that have lost a birthing unit in the past two decades. And part three looks at potential solutions. Angie Peitig had positive experiences delivering her two daughters at the Unity Point Health Marshalltown Birthing Unit in 2009 and 2014. Both were born in the hospital with no complications, and she would have delivered her son there as well, if not for a high-risk condition she developed. Learning the unit would close in 2019 made Peitig sad. Less for herself, as she was not having more children, but more for the community. A teacher at Franklin Elementary, which is located just down the street from the hospital, she said the closure takes away the convenience of having services available locally. When she was pregnant with all three of her children, she would always schedule her prenatal appointments right after school or over the lunch hours. The community connection created by the unit would be missed as well, Peitig said. She recalls attending first-time parenting classes offered by the hospital every Monday night with her husband and newborn daughter and receiving a gift from a nurse the night her second daughter was born. With the unit gone, Peitig said she was unsure how her friends would adapt. I felt concerned for some of my friends who are still adding to their families and where they're going to have to go for care, she said. One of those friends is Danny Minkle. She also works at Franklin, but as a school counselor, and is expecting her third child in December. Minkle's experiences mirror Pytig's. The deliveries of her two daughters in 2014 and 2018 at the hospital both went smoothly, but her next delivery will be in the Des Moines metro area. She was frustrated by the closure in Marshalltown as she contemplated driving two hours round trip for a 10-minute prenatal checkup and the potential need for emergent care with only the hospital's ER available to help locally. She said the news made her think, How can a town of 30,000 people go without this medical service? Fortunately, Minkle has been able to see midwives who travel from Des Moines at a clinic in Marshalltown for her prenatal care. But she knows other expecting parents who are traveling to Ames or Des Moines, and some who did so even before the unit closed. Marshalltown is not the only community navigating this experience and transition. Its hospital is just one of 40 in Iowa to close a birthing unit over the last 20 years. Without other options, parents are adapting while maternal health care in Iowa is undergoing a significant transformation. In 2000, 
77 of 99 Iowa counties had at least one birthing center available. By 2010, closures had reduced that number to 62. And as of April 2021, only 46 counties in the state had at least one open birthing center. That's 20 years of loss across communities that are primarily rural. The Anatomy of a Birthing Unit Closure The reasons behind each closure are different, but from working with hospitals across Iowa as co-director of the statewide perinatal care program, Dr. Stephen Hunter said he finds common themes. Number one is low volume. Often hospitals are not delivering enough babies to support the existence of a birthing unit. I like to joke in some of the presentations that I give that when I was a kid growing up in Utah, I used to ride horses and motorcycles, Hunter said. The motorcycle I had to feed only when I was riding it. The horse I had to feed whether I was riding it or not, Hunter said. A labor and delivery unit is like a horse. Paying doctors, anesthesiologists, nurses, and support staff to be on call 24-7 for births that aren't happening becomes financially infeasible for hospitals, particularly ones that serve less populated areas. Even if a hospital has the funding to support hiring, the question remains if they can find doctors to work at obstetrics. Hunter, who is also vice chair of obstetrics at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, said Iowa ranks last in the U.S. in OBGYNs per capita. There were 280 OBGYNs in Iowa in 2018 to serve the state's roughly 600,000 women of reproductive age, who are defined as women ages 15 to 44. The natural question then is, why aren't there enough births or OBGYNs? But the answers are multifaceted and lie beyond the hospitals rooted in evolving trends like the state's population and workforce changes. Liesl Ethington, coordinator of the Iowa Community Indicators Program at Iowa State University, said the 2020 census data stood out to her because it showed that the overall pattern of Iowa's population changes in the last 10 years looked almost identical to those from 2000 to 2010. Iowa's population has grown about 4% in each of the last two decades. And according to the USDA's Economic Research Service, each decade saw rural Iowa lose about 2% and urban areas gain 9.9%. Ethington said these patterns and similar population trends in other Midwest states are confirmations of the ongoing urbanization in Iowa, especially since 2000. Urbanization happens in many industries, and in healthcare, she said it is taking the form of more regional hospitals, as fewer independent ones can deliver obstetric services at a small scale and meet new demands for technology. In some sense, the things that are driving these trends are resulting in outcomes that are better on average for consumers to have more choice, maybe higher quality services, more technology, but it does create the burden on the people out in those remote 
those more remote areas, that they have to travel farther to get these things, she said. On average, maybe consumers are better off, but we definitely have inequity in terms of who's more able to take advantage of that. Ethington said these changes are the result of the urbanization of population and services that has been happening in Iowa for the last 20 years. Other Midwestern states with similar demographics are seeing the same changes, she said. Adding to the problem is that Iowa relies on family medicine physicians to fill the gaps created by the lack of OBGYNs in Iowa. Those practicing family medicine in Iowa often assist with natural deliveries, but usually depend on general surgeons to handle cesarean section deliveries. Offering prenatal care and deliveries as part of a family medicine practice does not require extra certifications, but interest has declined, as becoming the only physician to offer those services, especially in small hospitals, is not typically desirable for new doctors. In 1988, around 68% of family physicians in Iowa were willing to or planned to practice obstetrics upon completion of their residency. That figure dropped to 18% by 2018. Building Awareness and Support for Maternal Health Hunter is helping lead research to address maternal health issues like birthing unit closures and Iowa's maternal morbidity rate, which have gained statewide attention but not until more recently. When visits to birthing units for the statewide perinatal care program were being canceled due to closures, Hunter decided to survey hospital CEOs to understand why. Just two days before the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed in Iowa, the results were discussed at a conference held by the University of Iowa Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The event brought together hospital CEOs and staff, state legislators, and representatives from the governor's office, kickstarting awareness and efforts to address a different public health crisis in the state, Hunter said. Hunter is now the principal investigator on a $10 million grant from the Health Resources and Services Administration, seeking solutions in the space. But he said Iowa needs cohesive statewide interventions, and the grant is only the beginning. Hunter said, we didn't get here overnight. We're not going to fix it overnight. Our next story, Closer Look. Meet a leader you should know. Brittany Applegate, Director, Capital Crossroads. This story by Michael Crum. Brittany Applegate joined Capital Crossroads as its new director in June as part of a new leadership model with consulting firm State Public Policy Group, where she will retain her position as senior program manager. It's part of a new agreement where SPPG will provide various support services for a more comprehensive team to help Capital Crossroads as it continues to grow. Applegate, who was married in early October, said she's looking forward to bringing her diverse experience and skills to the conversation at Capital Crossroads over the next year as the organization begins work on its next five-year plan. 
from internships at the Iowa Department of Human Rights, Capital Crossroads, and the Greater Des Moines Partnerships Public Policy Team, to freelance policy research with the United Way of Central Iowa, to serving as an assistant to retired Senator Tom Harkin at the Harkin Institute at Drake University, and her current role at SPPG, Applegate said she believes her fresh perspective and experience will benefit Capital Crossroads as it works to increase community engagement and make the community a more equitable and inclusive place for everyone to work, live, and play. How has your prior work experience prepared you to take on the director's role at Capital Crossroads? I've always known I've wanted to help people, so for me it's about community building and policy and system level changes. It's looking at the bigger picture and what can we do to prevent people from being in these situations where they need help in the first place. All these things I have done have taught me to learn things really quickly, to understand what the big picture is and see what the strategies and goals are. That's what I do for Capital Crossroads. It's very comprehensive and touches every part of our region. To get connected to the experts who know the details, but then stepping back to see the bigger picture. It's that high-level high thinking that I like to do. What are your goals in your new position? I'm excited to start looking at ways we can do things differently. Next year, we'll start our next five-year vision process. What I'm hoping to do is not just look at what our goals are for the region, but also what our goals are as an organization. Are there different ways we should be doing things? Those are the kind of questions I'm asking now that I'm new to the group. I think that's what I'm most excited about and where I can provide leadership and new insights as we start that process next year. What attracted you to the position? I had the unique experience of being an intern at Capital Crossroads several years ago, so I got kind of a sneak peek, and it was interesting that we were looking at everything from green space and water trails to immigration and how that impacts our region. That experience was intriguing to me, and when I saw this position come open, I thought it was the perfect opportunity for me to put my diverse knowledge and skill set into one initiative working on multiple facets of our region and our community. What do you see as the biggest advantage Des Moines offers? What is its biggest challenge? We are a region that has a lot of the amenities of big cities. In a lot of ways, it feels like a big city, but still has that small town feel. And I think people really appreciate that and like that connection. People in Des Moines and the region are accessible to each other, and that means a lot, and you don't always get that in bigger cities. One of our biggest challenges is making sure everybody can enjoy that. It's no secret that many people in our community enjoy a lot of these things, and some people don't. There's that disparity there. For me, that's one of my biggest goals. I'm expecting that equity work to grow in our next iteration, and make sure there is an equity lens on all that we do to make sure that if you live here, you can enjoy your work, your living and playing in this community, no matter who you are. Describe your management style. For me, it's about making sure I understand the folks around me, what their strengths are, 
and lifting up those strengths and taking on or delegating where maybe they're not as strong. Lifting up and providing support in areas where I can fill in. And believing I'm not perfect. I don't have all the skills or the knowledge, so making sure I can get connected to the experts so they can help guide our work. And I think that's important for a manager to do. What are you looking forward to the most in your new position? This next iteration I'm excited for. Our current plan is great, but when people worked on it in 2017, I don't think anybody expected a pandemic to rock our world. So I'm excited for everyone to get together and start thinking big about what comes next for Des Moines. We've accomplished a lot of the things Capital Crossroads had set out to do, so this is another opportunity to think bigger and push ourselves more. Is there an advantage for you coming on board at the beginning of conversations for the next five-year plan? I'm really glad I was hired at the time that I was because I get this opportunity to be the new person in the room and ask questions about why we do things a certain way or have we thought about doing it a different way. We've had a lot of people involved in Capital Crossroads since its inception, and they're smart. They're visionaries. But I think when that's the case, you need a new perspective to come in and push things and question the status quo a little bit. That's the role I've tried to take on, and I think it's benefiting what this next process will look like. Brittany Applegate, at a glance, age 26, Hometown, Clive. Family, married. Husband, Ian, a software developer at NCMIC. Education, Bachelor of, Art, Bachelor of Arts in Social Justice, Spanish, and Applied Philosophy from Simpson College. Activities, traveling, participating on a trivia team, watching movies, going to live shows, and spending time with her two cats. Contact bapplegate at capitalcrossroadsvision.com. From the Tech and Innovation section, Agriculture Sector, Other Supply Chain Links at Risk of Cyber Attacks. Cybersecurity and agriculture professionals discuss effects of cyber threats on logistics and how local producers can protect themselves. By Sarah Bogards. From Colonial Pipeline's fuel pipeline to a JBS meatpacking plant and grain cooperatives in Minnesota and Iowa, several key links in the supply chain have been put at risk this year by ransomware attacks. These types of cyber attacks are just as likely as those that do not risk affecting the supply chain because hackers generally attack any systems that are vulnerable, no matter what sector they belong to. As technology becomes more integral to agriculture and other food production, more organizations and businesses need to invest in staff training and protections for their systems, experts say. The need to address gaps in cybersecurity protection among supply chain organizations is also made more important by the steady emergence of new methods of attack that can affect the central business as well as its customers or vendors, 
and the potential effects on the supply chain that could linger following a security breach. The business record sought input via email from professionals in the cybersecurity and agricultural industries to discuss potential effects on the supply chain and how agricultural organizations can address system vulnerabilities. Responses have been edited and condensed for clarity. Meet the participants. Brandon Potter, Chief Technology Officer at ProCircular Inc., a cybersecurity services firm with headquarters in Coralville. He has more than 15 years of experience in systems and network administration, security architecture design, and developing methodologies for in-depth cybersecurity assessments. He leads the company's team of cybersecurity engineers in developing multi-layered security approaches and tracks evolving cybersecurity threats and practices to better serve clients. Jeremy Hoffman, Cybersecurity Program Chair and an Associate Professor of Cybersecurity at Des Moines Area Community College. He works closely with all industries and programs at DMAC, including agriculture, giving guest lectures, and assisting with workshops. And Doug Jacobson, Director of the Iowa State University Center for Cybersecurity Innovation and Outreach as well as a professor of computer and electrical engineering. His work covers cybersecurity for critical infrastructure, design of cyber ranges, and cybersecurity education and literacy. From a question and answer session. Several disruptive ransomware attacks have made the news this year, some of which affected supply chains. Give some context on how common cyber attacks are on organizations in the supply chain. Are there any recent changes in methods or technology used that have made these kinds of attacks possible or easier to execute? Potter. Cyber attacks on supply chain organizations are not new. Companies in many industries face cyber threats and those intricate to the supply chain are no different. For years, attackers have been using third-party networks and systems to infiltrate other organizations. Recent methods, such as those leveraged in the SolarWinds and Kaseya attacks, are a newer frontier, have drastically increased the attack surface, and have significantly increased the threat actor's ability to mass-infect additional companies. More careful and tactful techniques are used in order to circumvent detection and make their attack more fruitful when analyzing and targeting the top of the supply chain. Hoffman Supply chain industries have been the focus of attacks as it is a way for nation state actors and state-sponsored groups to disrupt and gain large monetary sums from their ransoms. Methodologies are always being adapted and targeted based on trends and new exploits being found every day. The human element is usually the greatest weakness to security infrastructure and is responsible for most successful attacks. Attackers send out malicious links or documents and users click on them or open them, causing the remote access to work.
Jacobson. Attacks on the supply chain are part of the overall focus on using ransomware to extort money. Ransomware targets have shifted from organizations that provide goods and services to the public, like hospitals, cities, and businesses, to the supply chain. I can see a couple of reasons for this shift. First, potential victims learn what happened to others, which helps them better prepare for an attack. Second, attackers want to go after victims that cannot afford to stop production. The increase is partly driven by working from home, which forces companies to provide outside access to their systems. The ease at which attackers can access ransomware and the potential payoff has also caused a spike in the attacks. With more attackers and attacks, the chances of an organization making a mistake increases. Describe how cyber attacks are able to affect supply chains. What would it take to cause a significant disruption? Potter. Given how intertwined supply chains are with our economy and life, any cyber attack that causes an outage or inability to access data or systems will result in some significant impact. Since we rely on multiple facets in the supply chain, if one is delayed or down, it will likely have a cascading effect of two, three, or four layers deep. Take the JBS Foods and new cooperative cyber attacks as an example. The downtime resulted in delayed food and agriculture products distribution. Given the potential for shortage, this affected product availability increasing demand, and resulted in price increases. Hoffman. Cyber attacks can disrupt key services needed to maintain the supply of services or goods by taking down servers and data necessary for continuity. Services are built upon digital databases and networked environments. All it takes to take one part down to cause a failover all it takes is to take one part down to cause a failover situation. If that failover cannot handle the loads from the other servers that are offline, then the failure can become catastrophic. If you encrypt a database that has all the customer data and orders, you can effectively stop services as you have no way to access customer information and resolve orders or supplies to the customers. An example of supply chain disruption was the gas pipelines. If the attackers managed to change the pressure values and override sensor data, that could have blown up lines and caused damage for the entire infrastructure and surrounding areas. For the pipeline, it was more about making money, as that company supplied the whole eastern seaboard with gas and services. Jacobson the modern supply chain operates on a just-in-time model, which is especially true with perishable goods. For the supply chain to operate, we need to be able to produce goods, and we need to know the status of the goods and materials and how to move them. Computers are a critical part of both production and logistics. Cyber attacks have focused on both aspects of the supply chain. In the case of production, 
Cyber attacks slow down or stop the company's ability to make the product. In the case of logistics, the company loses the ability to move its product. As with any complex system, there are weak points which can change over time. While any disruption can cause problems, there is more damage when the attack is early in the supply chain. An additional concern is single points in the supply chain where alternate sources cannot mitigate the disruption. What are possible supply chain and economic disruptions that Iowa could experience as a result of a cyber attack? Would it matter if the attack originated in Iowa versus a different state? Potter. The effects of supply chain attacks are universal, regardless of geographical location. Whether it's a pipeline that delivers fuel to the state or a state-headquartered corporation, the synergies and reliance across the country increase the risk when the supply chain is targeted. Product shortages and price increases may be the most common disruptions. However, if one corporation purchases products from an Iowa-based company, it reduces the funds coming in that help sustain our economy. Hoffman each state has different resources and services that can be disrupted. A large portion of Iowa's energy comes from wind turbines, and they are just as susceptible to attacks as any other location. But because of the larger concentration, it could be a real issue for Iowa's energy sector. Farm equipment relies heavily on computers and electronics, and that is a possible attack point where damage to equipment and life is a possibility. We have a large sector of the health industry where a disruption in health care during a pandemic is another issue to be concerned about. We also must worry about grains, corn, and livestock in Iowa as a possible disruption, and whether any of the ag service areas were down for an extended time, or all the processing factories. These aren't unique to Iowa, but they are areas of concern when looking at potential attack scenarios. Jacobson. This, of course, depends on what and when they attack. Attacks during critical times, planting and harvest, with a finite time window could cause localized disruption. Given the distributed nature of many aspects of ag, a large-scale disruption would need to focus on large processors. We have already seen these attacks against meat processing. This does not rule out a widespread coordinated attack against many different local suppliers, which could cause a massive disruption. Another disruption would be the transportation system, which would have a more significant impact than the ag sector. The attacker can be anywhere in the world when they carry out a cyber attack. And while a lot of the ag supply chain is localized to Iowa and the Midwest, disruptions outside Iowa could cause problems. The hack of new cooperative ink based in Fort Dodge resulted in the loss of source cord for its soil map software for testing and mapping soil. What are agricultural businesses at risk of losing? And are some tech-focused businesses like ag tech startups more at risk of attacks? Potter. 
Intellectual property, data, and customer information are some of the main items at risk. Whether it's hacktivism or a financially motivated crime, there are significant risks to either. The loss of the new cooperative's soil map source code may allow the attackers to identify vulnerabilities, which can be used to gain the initial access to others that use the technology. Some startups think they're not a big player, so they are less at risk. Contrary to that belief, they're just as much of a target as the big player in their vertical. It's common in the startup realm, where the founders and initial team are designing, developing, and running the company, and wearing multiple additional hats, diluting 100% of their focus on supply chain and information security in general. They're focused on successful growth and gaining traction in the market. All of these combined increases the risk of a successful attack. Hoffman There really isn't one specific area that isn't affected by cyber attacks, as we are more reliant on digital data and networked infrastructure to manage and maintain our industries. Ag-specific businesses are at risk of stolen intellectual property and trade secrets, where other manufacturers could clone or build equipment or services resulting in monetary loss. They can also reverse engineer stolen source code and find vulnerabilities where they can manipulate pricing, in the case of market software, or manipulate the data streams from the software. Startups are always at risk due to financial restrictions and a pure focus on their product getting out as quickly as possible. They don't always have the capital to spend on security and professionals to help ensure their environments are secure. Startups tend to rely heavily on cloud services and providers to help mitigate their risk. This is an advantage and can be an issue if they don't have full understanding of their environments and security exposure. Jacobson Theft of data and intellectual property is a big issue facing the United States. The new cooperative lost data as part of a ransomware attack, which, while bad, is something they discover as part of the attack. There are many cases where the attacker's goal is to steal data, and they do not want to be discovered. The loss of data can result in customer data being released, which can be devastating to both the business and the customers. The loss of intellectual property can result in losing your competitive advantage, even to the point of losing the business. Name some of the key barriers to recovery from a cyber attack and if there could be any specific impacts for recovery among agricultural businesses. Hoffman Not having current backups and offline recovery backups. Ag businesses are just like any other business model. They all need to have sound policies, disaster recovery plans, and competent administrators. Key barriers are always money, updated policies and procedures, continuous testing of the environments, and teams who are cross-trained in SecDevOps methodologies. Agricultural businesses own, are no longer behind in technology and share the same risk factors as most industries. 
They just control a different supply chain, food. Jacobson. Time is the key barrier to recovery. Before you can even start recovery, you have to know the extent of the damage, which takes time. With ransomware, that is what they are counting on. You do not have enough time to recover without paying the ransom. In ag, many processes cannot be delayed, so produce, producers and processors do not have time to recover. What is one thing you would like to see happen in Iowa to strengthen the defense against cyber attacks in the state? Potter. We need help from the legislation within Iowa. Although federal guidelines exist, there are too many to follow, and most differ depending on several factors. We need something specific to Iowa, built by Iowans, to ensure it has the state's best interest in mind. I'd encourage the federal guidelines to be used, as it's a great starting point, but deviation from standards and new rules will make it more challenging to adopt as both state and federal requirements will need to be followed. Keep it simple and leverage the basics. The guidelines and conditions need to be simple yet effective for mass adoption. Hoffman. More training and awareness as well as a more holistic approach to prevention and responses. We have some great cyber conferences and a great security group, which meet regularly. More businesses should get involved with SecDSM and SecIC in the state, as well as ISSA and the Secure Iowa conferences. These are excellent ways to meet community experts and network and learn. Developing more internship programs where entry-level students can get experience and help fill roles but the students also benefit from training. Work with community colleges and programs to strengthen their cyber training programs. With today's cyber threatscape, businesses are needing to invest in their workforce for training and updating skills for all employees. IT is just one link in the chain of defense. The users and general population must care more about cyber risk. You can have the best security in the world, but all it takes is one person to slip up and everything can go sideways. And Jacobson. The state should focus on enabling information sharing and cooperation. The attackers share information and often cooperate. Interviews with two agriculture participants Scott Meredith, Senior Client Executive at Associated Computer Systems, a Des Moines-based technology services firm that works with many of the Iowa Institute of Cooperatives members on their cybersecurity plans and practices. He is also involved with multiple regional and national agricultural organizations. And Chad Hart, Extension Economist and a Crop Markets Specialist for Iowa State University who also teaches in the economics department. He regularly interacts with farmers, landowners, and agricultural interest groups. How are those in the agriculture industry reacting to recent cyber attacks affecting the supply chain? What are their top concerns surrounding cybersecurity? Hart. 
The recent cyber attacks have highlighted that the businesses being targeted can be of any size and in any vocation. I think many companies and farmers feel at risk, but aren't sure how to defend their systems. I think the ag community is like much of the general community, hoping technology companies will continue to create and manage tools to deal with the threats. Meredith The agriculture industry is now taking a more proactive approach to security. They are evaluating their current security posture, identifying gaps, and trying to close those gaps. The industry is realizing that a layered approach to security and protection is necessary. Top concerns are loss of data, data being stolen, data not being accessible, or systems being down completely. What are the barriers keeping organizations from investing in or implementing cybersecurity measures? Detail any that are specific to the ag industry. Heart. I think the largest barrier in general is the cost-benefit viewpoint. While the cost of a cyber attack is high, the probability is still quite low, meaning that many see less benefit from investing in cybersecurity measures. Meredith. Budget is always a concern. The ag industry, like all industries, must weigh the cost of having their systems down versus the necessary spending to secure their systems. The bottom line is how much are they willing to spend to mitigate their risk? What concerns are top of mind for you in terms of how a cyber attack targeting the supply chain could affect the agriculture industry and rural and farming economies? Heart. My main concerns have already been highlighted by previous attacks. That the food supply chain can be seriously impacted or even shut down by an attack. Ag is like many sectors of the economy where technology has created a rapid, efficient production processing, and merchandising system, but the reliance on that technology has opened up new risks within the industry that we are just now facing. Meredith. The inability to buy and sell products from seed to feed to fertilizer. Delays in harvest, planting, or availability of feed to livestock producers can have a tremendous effect on our regional and national food supply. What are the important lessons for agricultural organizations and other food producers to take away from recent supply chain attacks, like the ones on JBS Meatpacking or New Cooperative, Inc.? Heart. The attacks remind us of counterparty risk, the risks that you face when doing business with others. Their risks become your risks. For example, we use a piece of software from a company the security flaws in that software are not just the software company's problem. They become your problem as well. Meredith. Be proactive in your approach to your security posture. Have a business continuity plan, a disaster recovery plan, and an incident response plan. These plans need to be updated and tested annually. Are there any specific reasons why hackers may target organizations like meatpacking plants or agricultural organizations? Heart. I don't think ag is unique here. 
but I think ag is among a core group of sectors, energy, medical, etc., that are targeted not just for money, but also for notoriety. Meredith. There's really nothing unique. Hackers target industries and organizations that are vulnerable. However, they may target industries like the food supply chain to create a more impactful message to the world. And the final question, what is one thing you would like to see happen in Iowa to strengthen the defense against cyber attacks in the state? Hart. A quick move would be to develop programming within the state to help Iowa's businesses and even individuals assess their risks to cyber attacks and point to simple ways to address some of those risks. It's hard to fix a problem unless you understand it first. And Meredith, it's really up to each company to be proactive in strengthening their defense. Everyone must be diligent. The state can provide increased awareness to everyone regarding the potential risk and potential mitigation. Sharing of information regarding attacks among companies is important as well. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, December 3rd, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, the column on leadership by Susanna DeBaca, president and group publisher, BPC. Work is not working for women. What can leaders do about it? It seems like every week I read a new report on women leaving the workforce, and every week I have conversations with women friends who are contemplating quitting their jobs due to burnout. Trying to juggle spreadsheets, deadlines, childcare, and endless to-do lists at home has left women exhausted and fed up. As a female leader, I can relate. I feel great empathy for each woman's experience and decision and simultaneously feel great concern about what women struggling or leaving the workforce means to the companies we lead, our economy, and the status of women overall. Why is work not working for women? The pandemic has compounded the overload many women have felt for years. We've been trying to do it all, and recent shifts have increased workloads at home and at work, leaving women at a breaking point. A just-released Women in the Workplace report from Lean In and McKinsey and Company found that one in three women have considered changing or leaving their jobs in the past year, up from one in four women the prior year. And while both men and women are reporting burnout, the gap between men and women who feel overwhelmed has nearly doubled and more women are considering taking different jobs or leaving the workforce altogether. What can we as leaders do to support women? We can adapt our workforce to meet the needs of women, says research from Deloitte Global. That report indicates employers who give women a culture and support to enable them to succeed, quote, have a more productive and motivated workforce, and are likely to report greater retention, end quote. Culture makes all the difference. 
The concept of creating a new way of working was emphasized in a recent Boston Business Journal article by my business school classmate Andrea Silbert and co-author Lynn Wooten called Why Work Isn't Working for Women. They maintain that if employers want to stay competitive, they must build workplace cultures that are equitable and inclusive and, quote, throw out the old top-down traditional models to attract diversity, end quote. I asked local leaders, what do companies need to do to stay competitive in retaining and advancing women in the workforce? Here are several responses. Kate Benesiak, CEO, owner of Diversified Management Services, says, Stop thinking it's a one-size-fits-all table. Instead, get brave and build a table that allows people to pull up a multitude of chairs that create an open environment for evolution. The right chair allows employees to shine without burning out. Beth Coonan, shareholder of Denter's Davis Brown, Leaders should embrace flexibility. Providing flexibility doesn't mean sacrificing accountability, but it does mean dialing back the micromanagement, meeting women where they are, and recognizing their unique talents. If you don't trust a particular employee enough to give them flexibility, that employee probably doesn't belong on your team. Lonnie Daphne, AVP and Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at EMC Insurance Companies. Leaders will need to be much more grounded in what the word equity means. Along with greater flexibility in their approach, leadership, and the cultural norms they are perpetuating. Leaders must understand that the traditional work environment and roles are a thing of the past and must evolve to a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment. Sanjita Pradhan, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Greater Des Moines Partnership. This may sound like a simple answer, but there is plenty of research showing that empathy and empathetic leadership are crucial to retaining talent, fostering inclusion, fostering psychological safety, and preventing burnout. If we combine empathy and care, we will be able to better understand the issues our female colleagues are dealing with and provide them with the needed support to contribute their time and talent to our workforce. Emily Schmidt, Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel at Sukup Manufacturing Company. Today it's not just about trendy recruiting, but intentional recruiting. You must be competent in retaining women and other targeted, target recruited groups before you can intentionally market for that pool. Consider flexible schedules, no meetings before nine or after three, great benefits and emotionally intelligent managers who understand the circumstances and environments we are operating in. Eugenia Kutch Stanton, U.S. Crop Protection Regulatory Leader with Corteva AgriScience. Listen, connect, and empower women. Examine your culture. Practice equity and humility. Have difficult dialogue and empowering conversations. Measure the impact of your values. Culture is what you do, not what you say.
Supporting women on their own terms is key now and in the future. Equitable cultures, inclusive policies, flexible schedules, and opportunities for advancement will make the difference between women leaving or staying in the workforce. Prioritizing women's well-being is good for business, good for women, and good for all of us. Best Practices for Leaders Who Want to Support Women in the Workforce Respect Women's Unique Talents and Needs Recognize and acknowledge the unique contributions and roles that women play, says Kutch Stanton. Our flexibility and agility is at once transformational and disruptive. Be Curious Banasiak urges employers to be intentional and creative, saying, When we drill down further into the why of what we are trying to solve, we might find answers that we never would have imagined. At her company, she has created an entirely new system to replace the 8 to 5 concept. It allows employees to work at their peak points in the day and still service clients. Be creative. Sukup Manufacturing looks for ways to make jobs more accessible for women. If you're a manufacturer, review workstation requirements frequently, Schmidt says. We use cost reduction technologies from Iowa to reduce strenuous jobs to widen the base for women's entry. Combine empathy and care. Pradhan says, in addition to empathy, leaders should really care about their employees. Leaders who truly care take each woman's needs seriously and help craft a path that meets the needs of employee and employer. Says Benasiak, I want each employee to feel aligned with what mutual success looks like. Listen and act. Daphne says, don't assume. Ask and be prepared for the response. Kunin encourages leaders to foster a culture where women can openly express their opinions, an atmosphere free from ego and threat of reprisal. She asserts, Organizations reach their full potential when all voices are heard. And that does it for today's reading of the Business Record for Friday, December 3rd, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
Exploring Science in the Sea. The polar bear is more than just a big mammal. It's an icon for an entire region. It's hard to think of the Arctic without picturing these beautiful creatures. Yet it's also a symbol for how that region is changing. A warmer climate is reducing the amount of sea ice in the Arctic, which could lead to a big reduction in polar bear populations. No bear is bigger than the polar bear. An adult male can weigh up to three quarters of a ton. To maintain that size, polar bears spend much of their time hunting seals, which are rich in fat and calories. Unlike most bears, polar bears do most of their hunting in the winter, when the ice pack extends far out to sea. A bear finds a hole in the ice that seals use to breathe and waits for a seal to stick its nose out. Or it can slip up close to a seal at the edge of the ice, then charge across the last few feet to catch its meal. During summer, when the ice retreats, polar bears may not eat for months, and that's why climate change is a problem. Ice is forming later and melting earlier than it did just a few decades ago. That leaves less time for the bears to build up fat reserves for the lean months. Studies have found that the bears in some groups weigh less than they used to. And that they're more likely to eat land-based animals and even garbage, foods that aren't as nutritious. So more bears could starve. In fact, a 2015 study said the polar bear population could drop by 30% by 2050, decreasing the numbers of the Arctic's most powerful symbol. Science in the Sea is a production of the University of Texas Marine Science Institute at Port Aransas. I'm Holly Brawley.